This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It's week 55, still working from home for many in our world. Tim, it was a shortened trading week, but one with a blockbuster story about a block trade blow up. Yeah, an absolutely huge story. And Carol, I got to say, each time I hear you tick off that number, 54, 55, next week it'll be 56. I wonder just how many more weeks we are going to be working from home. I have no idea. But one thing I can tell you is Mm. that there are some worries about a fourth COVID wave in the U.S. This coming as we get conflicting data vaccine rolling out big time at the same time we're seeing hospitalizations go up in some areas. We are indeed. Just like you say, we're losing count of how many weeks. I'm losing count of how many waves. We've got both of those stories covered. We're going to talk about the virus, the impact on how we work. We're also going to talk about that block trade blow up, plus a tale of two fast food restaurants, one an iconic brand that's been around for 70 years, Tim the other, just around for a decade, but just long enough to catch the attention of LeBron James. We'll hear from both the CEO of Jack in the Box, Darren Harris, as well as Blaze Pizza President Mandy Shaw. But we begin with a story in the magazine. This week, President Biden saying that 90% of U.S. adults will be eligible to get a COVID-19 shot by April 19th, and 90% of the nation will live within five miles of a vaccination site. Pfizer also saying that the COVID-19 vaccine is 100% effective in a study of children ages 12 to 15. But Carol, we know at the Mm. same time, cases still rising again. Definitely troubling. So with that in mind, one story in the magazine caught our attention. It's about Merck's COVID pill and how it would give doctors an important new treatment and a weapon against coronaviruses and future pandemics. The reporter on it, Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Riley Griffin, who joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. There's this little pill that Merck has been developing. It's one of several hundred different varieties of, of treatments that are basically underway right now, but based on, on the reporting, we think Merck's is maybe closest to some data, um, which could be forthcoming within a matter of days. And that will really give us a look at um, what we all hope is another chapter in this fight against COVID, which um, would start to look like treatment, something that you could give someone when they get sick um, that's different than a vaccine. Obviously, we need the vaccines too, but what happens if someone has a vaccine, uh, is vaccinated, gets sick, or for all of those people out there who who might not have a vaccine? And that's where this Merck development comes in. So, So Riley, talk to us a little bit about what an antiviral, what's the promise of an antiviral like this? Hundreds of thousands of people continue to contract COVID each and every day. So we need those therapies. Um, to get to patients quickly at the beginning of their disease. Cynthia, my colleague, and I like to frame this as Tamiflu for COVID, something that could be deployed broadly to your sister, your grandparent, those high-risk, those low-risk, at the earliest course of their disease. As you said, there are hundreds of antivirals in development, 250 about, so to speak. Um, And viruses are really uniquely difficult to attack with drugs. I don't think we you know, in the press speak enough about the complexity of developing therapeutics. These viruses hijack human cells and set up machinery to churn out copies of themselves within the body, which creates a real challenge. How do you destroy the virus without harming those cells? And success, when it comes, can be quite fleeting because, as we've already seen, viruses mutate to survive. So Merck is the leader of the pack. We could see data before the end of the month. 
um, should it prove safe and effective, which is a real question, um, it's likely to be, that data is likely to be the backbone of an emergency use authorization here in the U.S. So if it happens for emergency use authorization here in the U.S., and, and we're at a point where we've like been really gotten done a good job with becoming vaccinated, does then that does that then mean that this moves into the global fight against COVID? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. For one, I think there will still be need here. We've got a, a great population that's vaccine hesitant. We've got um, a, a population under the age of 16 that doesn't have access. But globally, this is definitely necessary. And compared to some of the other tools out there, like the monoclonal antibodies, like Gilead's remdesivir, it's also poised to be much cheaper of an alternative. It's not an hours-long infusion that is required to be given in specialized settings. Um, it's what we call a small molecule, which means the manufacturing is much more simple. And Merck says it can churn out about 10 million courses, which is 100 million pills. You take it twice a day for five days um, within the span of this year. But in our interviews, Merck also said, and mind you, Merck is so global health oriented. They said that they want to create licenses that basically allow other manufacturers to make this pill too, should it prove safe and effective, thereby um, creating greater access worldwide. Well, let's just stick with Merck here because um, Merck is very well known for its public health work. Uh, it fell short on its vaccine efforts. What's at stake here for, for Merck when this data comes out? Joel, that was a, a big disappointment earlier in the year when Merck's two vaccine candidates both showed lackluster data in early clinical trials. I think they need a big win, not just because they want to put their stamp on the pandemic and show that they can have an impact here, too. Of course, they're helping manufacture J&J's vaccine. But let's think longer term about Merck's business model. This is a company that has become highly reliant on one product alone, Keytruda, a cancer product um, that is making up a, a great chunk of their revenue. And investors keep asking what's next in the pipeline. So Molnupiravir could partially be that. And I think what Merck has said to us, um, they're very eager to know, is whether this has broad spectrum activity. No doubt about it. Data, so important in all of this. That was Bloomberg News U.S. healthcare reporter Riley Griffin, who joined us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Well, coming up, virus cases atop the most red queue on the Bloomberg. So too was reporting about the unwinding of highly leveraged trades that led to the implosion of one little-known family office. I thought it was supposed to be a quiet kind of holiday or leading up to a holiday weekend. You know how this works. If it's supposed to be a quiet <laughs> week, it's all but quiet. That is so true. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Remember how we were all obsessed about the Suez Canal backup last week? You remember that? Uh, yeah, I'm actually a little <laughs> sad that the ship got unstuck because it was such a great story. I mean, not really, but you know what I mean. No, but visually it was a great story and it just, you know, how kind of one ship getting blocked just shut down kind of our supply chain, our global supply chain. Yeah, it was such a good illustration of how much we rely on global <gasps> trade and just really small areas of the world to get us our things. Well, this week, we kind of had a replacement. We were similarly focused on a little-known family office and its head, Bill Wang, and Archegos Capital Management, and what may turn out, Tim, to be one of the biggest margin calls 
of all time. We've got two stories on this. First up, what was going on at the big banks like Credit Suisse as this was unfolding about a week and a half ago? Here's Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber and Bloomberg News finance reporter Sri Natarajan. Sri among the Bloomberg team that broke this one and has kept us up to date on the ongoing story. For those who've been dealing with Bill Huang and his family office, they were starting to get worried and alarmed by the middle of the week as some of his uh, big positions were moving in the other direction. And very soon, by the middle of the week, the banks did realize they had a big problem on their hands, the risk department, that a number of Wall Street banks, European banks, and even Japanese banks were starting to get worried. So they all decided to get together on a hastily arranged call that included some of the top lawyers from all of these firms, also included Bill Huang to find a solution to figure out how to untie and unwind these positions in a tidy manner. From our reporting, we understand that Credit Suisse, in fact, was the one that was pushing for this idea of a standstill agreement, asking everyone to cool down, back off for a little bit, let's see how the price action moves, and look at it again on Monday, because they did not want to see an immediate forced liquidation. Well, they clearly reached no agreement. Um, They were all in it for themselves by Friday, it was clear, because they'd all broken rank. And now, as we see the consequence of that action, we see the big U.S. bank, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, appear to have emerged from this largely unscathed, but that is not true for an MUFJ, which overnight told us that their losses could be about $300 million. Nomura, which says it has a $2 billion claim without actually saying what its actual hit could be from this. And Credit Suisse, which has still not provided a figure, but estimates on that are heading into multi-billion dollars. And that sort of starts to explain Credit Suisse's stance on that fateful call last Thursday. Sri, what, what could have been a tidier way to unwind this? You, you, you know, you said the banks were looking for a tidier way to do this, but, but how could these losses have been prevented when the stock started moving lower? No, Tim, you're absolutely right. So we're still trying to piece together that part of the puzzle, but uh, one possibility very well could be instead of the banks moving to Sase Collateral and force some sort of liquidation event, Perhaps the strategy was wait and see if the stock rebounds. Perhaps the strategy was asking some of the banks who had the potential to demand much more margin to give some sort of margin holiday. It isn't clear what the solution could have been, but what is clear is for at least some of those participants on the call, the idea that banks would move into the market by Friday and do a rapid fire sale of a number of these positions was going to be the worst case outcome. And that's what they're dealing with now. So Sri, what are the big unanswered questions that um, that remain? Well, in the now, the regulators, investors, and everyone on the outside is trying to make sure, is there more to come? Are we going to see more blocks, junky stock trades happening. That was Bloomberg News finance reporter Sri Natarajan and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. No doubt about it. We need a lot more transparency on this. Yeah, I think it's something we're going to continue to see lawmakers, in fact, call on. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's get to our second story, though, on this subject. It's about the Tiger King and his cub. We're talking about legendary hedge fund investor Julian Robertson. He's the king. And then the cub is the man behind the block trade blowup, Bill Wang. Our Bloomberg News finance reporter Max Abelson actually caught up with Robertson and asked him about his tiger offspring. 
I called him and I said, you know, would you mind if I flipped on the, you know, the tape recorder and can we talk about this? I know it's unpleasant. And he, and he said, yeah, take it away. I, I did not expect, though, I did not expect a kind of full-throated um, defense of, of uh, Bill Wang. It, you know, and, and when I say defense, what I really mean is that just time and again, when I, when I pressed Julian on, you know, the, the, these monstrously vast losses, you know, just over and over again, he said, you know, look, we've all seen hard times. And, you know, I don't know what went wrong, but Bill's a decent guy, and I hope he bounces back. And, you know, honestly, he even said that he would still invest with Bill um, even now. So, you know, it's just a, I don't know if you call that loyalty um, or you call it faith, but um, Julian Robertson, um, this famed hedge fund billionaire, really sort of um, staying Staying close to his to his protege. Yeah, Max, that really stuck out to me about your piece, and and one other part did as well. Uh, saying repeatedly that this could probably happen to to anyone. You know, look, I, I as a journalist, you know, you need to be open to whatever people are saying to you, and mm-hmm. and you have to let you know a subject, um, as you both know, as as interviewers, you know, you you have to let people take the microphone once you offer it to them, but. You know, also as a good objective journalist, you, you can't sort of um, you, you can't just sort of let people talk without pressing them. So I was I was really clear to him. You know, I said to him, you know, look, this isn't just something that happened to Bill Wang. He 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 had a role in this. He used leverage um, to get himself into what we now know is is a remarkable remarkable amount of trouble. And and his direct answer when I asked about that was like, you know, well, look, you know, he's he's actually a marvelous person. And he basically he made it sound like a Greek tragedy. He said he said it's it's tragic that this that this thing happened. Um, you know he was he was really he, he described it almost on a personal scale. Whereas you know as financial reporters, I think we we understand it as um, you know as something much vaster, as something that's shaking markets and something that's shaking banks and something that that is still playing out even as the three of us speak. Matt. Max, as I was reading through the Q&A that you had back and forth with Julian Robertson, I wondered, and you talk to big names on Wall Street all the time about very difficult subjects. Was there any question that you felt a little uncomfortable asking or pushing on? Yes, I felt uncomfortable about the whole thing. I mean, that's, that's how you know that it's potentially a good, a, a good uh, interview when, you know, I felt really awkward. You know, I, I have a job as a Bloomberg News reporter to press him on, you know, the, the, the facts um, of what's happened here. And, and what we know is that, you know, for example, Wang, you know, had to pay like $60 million. That was Bloomberg News finance reporter Max Abelson. Note this story continuing to unfold as we put our show to bed. Check out Bloomberg.com for the latest on that. Still ahead. Managing the pandemic, no easy task, especially within the restaurant industry. The CEO of Jack in the Box, next. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
Tim, this is something near and dear to you. We've got a double dose of fast food restaurants. That's right. From an older established brand to a younger upstart backed by an NBA legend. First, the iconic well-known brand started 70 years ago, Jack in the Box. We are talking about that. Shares of that company, man, they're up in the high teens percentage-wise this year after a 19% gain last year. The fast food chain recently reported earnings, first quarter comp store sales coming in better than analyst estimates, earnings beat too. And to hear more about the past year and the outlook of the business, we caught up with the head of the company. That's right. That's Darren Harris. He's CEO of the San Diego, California-based Jack in the Box and began, like we often do, asking about this past pandemic-filled year. Definitely an interesting time to join a, a company in the middle of a pandemic. And right. Try to try to get to know your staff and your team and and lead them when you, you, you haven't even met the whole team in person for months into the pandemic. But, you know, our focus was really how do we, you know, focus on making sure that our employees and our guests were safe and by, by enable our, our ability to do that and focusing on that, we were able to really drive our off-premise business and enable product innovation. And, and as you just mentioned, led to our, our best year in 27 years, yeah. our best quarter in 27 years. So how did you do it? How, do you, how did you ensure that customers are safe? How do you ensure that employees are safe? What are the changes that you're making to your restaurants? No, definitely. We're making a, a touchless environment. We're always looking for you know, each day making sure employees' health safety checks are, are happening. Um, even during my training, joining the company, uh, I went to go to my first training restaurant to go through training as any employee would, and uh, we shut the restaurant down because uh, we had one, one employee who was quarantined. And so, you know, being that diligent about making sure that, um, you know, we're taking care of uh, our team members, then we can take care of our guests. Hey, talk to us, if you could, Darren, about the mix, because from my understanding is before the pandemic, I think drive through was about 70% of your sales. Dine-in and takeout delivery was about 15% a piece. So give me an idea of how that changed. What's the update during the pandemic? Yeah, during the pandemic, about 99% of our business is uh, off-premise. Okay. And, um, and so substantial change. You know, we were already uh, heavily off-premise, but but during this time, it, it switched pretty dramatically. And I just want to make sure I'm understanding uh, the verbiage here. When you say off-premise, you mean drive-through, but also is it walk-up too? It's also delivery. Yeah, it's walk-up delivery and uh, and drive-through. How are you? How are you? How have you figured out delivery? What's the right way to do it? A lot of restaurants are struggling with this right now. Um, you know, for us, it's about making sure that we engage um, our guests. We give them opportunities to order in the way that they want to order versus online through our app or through the third uh, party major delivery providers. So we give them access to do that in many different ways and, and try to make it as frictionless as possible. But you would rather have them order through your app if you had your druthers, right? Uh, you know, obviously through our app, um, it continues to enable us to build a database that we can constantly communicate uh, to our guests and, and create a one-on-one -on -one relationship. So yes, we would, we would always enjoy, you know, having people engage in our app and really focus on being a brand, you know, a brand loyalist. But it does it, does it reduce the commission that you have to pay third parties in order to deliver the actual food? It's, it's good for the, you know, it's good for the guests and it's good for us as well from a margin standpoint, because it is a lower cost. You know, during, during the pandemic and early on in my tenure, we did a lot of work around understanding our guests, why they come to us, why they leave. And so we've been very focused on making sure, you know, we, we're providing them the offers that they want. So as an example, we've, we've had uh, the benefit of um, more premium items 
during the pandemic that have resonated with our higher income guests. And so it's driven incremental sales through really some snackable and craveable items like our tiny tacos, our soft and loaded fries, and then the innovation with our new chicken line. Um, and all of those have raised our system-wide sales in AUVs. Let's talk chicken. What's AUVs? Oh, go ahead. <laughs> and then we'll no, talk I'm chicken. Sorry. Yeah. Annual unit volume. Okay, so cool. Average unit volume. Sorry. Can we talk chicken now? Because <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen a huge resurgence in chicken, especially when it comes to chicken sandwiches. How are you guys partaking in the chicken sandwich wars? Yeah, so we're, we're leaning it all in. And um, for us, chicken has been a, a strong performer, you know, in the middle of the pandemic. Um, we'll continue to innovate. We, we rolled out our cluck chicken sandwich. And we'll continue to look at ways to, to connect with guests through chicken. We, we found that chicken is less price sensitive. Um, and it also allows us to create different flavor profiles that um, really fit the jack-in-the-box DNA, which is one of innovation. Whoever thought that chicken would be innovation? Chicken, so hot right now. <laughs> it certainly is. That was Darren Harris, CEO of Jack in the Box. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, restaurants still on the menu. This time from a newer upstart that's backed by none other than LeBron James. Who is also known as Ron in the company's <laughs> commercials. I love it. We're going to talk with the president of Blaze Pizza. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So Tim and I both enjoy Friday pizza nights in our own home. Someone who knows a lot about all things pizza is the CEO of Blaze Pizza, which has restaurants, Tim, around the country, also in Canada and the Middle East. It also lays claim to one a very well-known investor and franchise owner, LeBron James, which we brought up along with many other things when we spoke to Blaze Pizza president and CEO Mandy Shaw. Carol, you began by talking about a year like no other. A year. Uh, yeah. It feels like it, and then it feels like 10 years. Mm-hmm. If you think back to that first uh, week of shutdowns when everything was sort of solidified, no one knew if this was the apocalypse, right? So the first thing that we had to do was make sure our franchisees were financially secure. We're a 99% franchise organization. Uh, so we gave an industry-leading release package for nine weeks. We coached them on PPP. We had individual coaching sessions with franchisees to make sure they could get those dollars that as they became available, uh, we provided other forms of relief. We got tons of vendor donations for hand sanitizer, masks, a lot of the things that had to go into the restaurant to make sure that safety was paramount for our team members, as well as our guests coming into the restaurant. And then really where we deepened what is really important to me anyway, from a franchise perspective is transparency and communication. We Mm -hmm. had daily calls with our franchise council, We had weekly franchise, all-hand franchisee calls where we said, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we're going to tell you next week, right? And Mm -hmm. so if you think about the business, our dine-in sales were still 80% of our uh, top line Mm pre-pandemic, and then they all just shut off. (laughs) Wow. So we had to, what what I called, get gorilla (laughs) and figure out how we raise awareness that we were still open. You could still come into a blaze, walk down the line, make your pizza and take it out. You just couldn't sit down in the restaurant. And, you know, we already had delivery with two providers uh, and other, other um, like, curbside, or, excuse me, carryout and, and walkout service. But we introduced curbside carryout in three weeks' time. I just said, we got to get it up. We got to figure out how to do this and move quickly and make it happen. We added Uber Eats as our third delivery provider, and those were incremental sales 
Uh, and so we just put together a lot of programs to make sure that we were taking care of our franchisees and getting those sales back in the door as fast as we possibly could. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of uh, conversations that we have had um, with restaurants that, you know, had a digital strategy perhaps, but all of a sudden, because they had to, ramped it up dramatically. Tell me about the digitization of your business and how that strategy has maybe changed because of the pandemic or, or has been ramped up. Uh, <laughs> ramped up, you called it. <laughs> What's the word you up? would use? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it, we're up 150%. You yeah. know, we started um, in the summer of Jeez. 2019. We launched two specialty crusts, a cauliflower crust, and we were the first national chain to launch a keto crust, with six grams net carbs. Mm. And so right on the heels of that, we also launched a large pizza, a shareable family office space, you know, more like what a legacy pizza um, looks like. And it delivers better because it's engineered to hold heat. And so we had a 360 degree media campaign to build a digital business and it was growing. We had a, an eight point comp swing from call it fall of, of the year prior to <laughs> just before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and then it dropped out. So from great pain comes great reward at times. What this has done for us is build that digital business. We range week to week from 50-50 to 60-40 in terms of digital versus dine-in. And what that means for us is greater total top line coming out of the pandemic might be a slightly painful way to get there, (laughs) Uh, going through all the things that we had to do. But the mass of people who came to off-premise dining, uh, you know, I I read some statistics at one point about there's a 600% increase in people over the age of 50 adopting app ordering, right, delivery, third-party delivery, and those sorts of things that we saw in the numbers and, and what these players have been able to accomplish. Right. So we got our piece of that, and now as we get dining rooms reopened again, we're retaining 80% of that business or so, which means our volumes are much higher than they were previously, which, again, is, is a win for the brand. Mandy, I kind of ask you, what's it like to have LeBron James uh, as uh, an investor, as a franchisee, a franchisee owner, uh, someone who's actually been in a lot of videos, viral videos um, for Blaze Pizza? <laughs> what is that like? Uh, one word, fun, right? It's <laughs> yes. so exciting. You know, LeBron is, is a great partner in that, he actually cares, and he makes selective uh, choices about who he, quote, gets in bed with, right? And mm-hmm. years ago, he decided to come to Blaze because of our philosophy of clean ingredients, better food, better for you, you know, a new way to pizza upgrade. And so it's, it's a rather informal partnership that just really is fun. Anything that we offer up to him, like those viral videos, he just says, yeah, let's have a good time with this and, and see what we can do. And it's really just part of his portfolio. And Blaze wins when he wins and vice versa. So it's a it's a very nice additive part to what the, the Blaze uh, persona is for sure. Well, it's interesting to you talk about kind of things that are important to him in terms of how you guys make your pizzas. It's real ingredients, not frozen. They're made in-house every day. No chemicals, no additives, no nitrates in the meats. I mean, this is a huge trend in the food industry and we just see it continue to pick up momentum. How is that shaping kind of how you guys continue to move forward, how you... Uh, you know, supply out ingredients. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, our chef, uh, Chef Brad Kent, was one of the founders of Blaze. And honestly, I rely on him quite a bit. Mm. <laughs> and the concept does, because 
His background is really unique. He's, he's got a business degree. He's a food scientist. He has worked as a personal chef and was a food designer for some large brands across the country. So he's a very unique chef in that he understands what corporate R&D is about, but he really makes amazing food. So he's one of the first people who worked directly with providers to do things that you would never think of, like take additives and preservatives out of banana peppers. All other banana peppers have some kind of preservative in them to keep that yellow, bright, vibrant color, and we have none of that. So the list is long of things where he has just decided it's important, and he really wants to change the world. He wants to Mm -hmm. have an impact on food supply and the food system and showing that you don't have to, you know, compromise when you eat things. It's not, we don't do it in a luxury way. We're not here to, you know, Mm -hmm. tell people how they should eat. To us, it's the cornerstone of how we want to present ourselves and what is important to the consumer. So anything we put in the restaurants, we put it through that lens of, does it meet this criteria of really being a better product and tasting amazing, right? We're not out just chasing trends uh, just for the sake of chasing them. So it, it actually is, thank you for mentioning it, a really important part of of what we do. Well, it's a lot. And I got to say, it's a bigger and bigger conversation that we are having um, when it comes to anything with food. I mean, I think back to conversations we've had with John Mackey over at Whole Foods, uh, conversations I had for years with Steve Ells about what they were doing at Chipotle, like this whole idea of how can we make kind of the whole food supply chain better and provide people with food that is better for them ultimately. Um, Going forward, tell me about growth plans and, and has the pandemic sped them up, slowed them down? How has it changed maybe, you know, the expansion or any kind of CapEx spending going forward? Great question. Um, Really, the slowness that came from the pandemic was related to just COVID delays, not necessarily anyone having trepidation about opening a restaurant. So we opened 20 restaurants last year. We've got 30 in the pipeline this year, uh, which means people might have been a little slower to pull the trigger on new opportunities. Mm -hmm. But real estate is opening up. So that means this is where the growth moment comes. And particularly after large economic disruptions or life-changing economic uh, situations, franchisees tend to win. (laughs) People who might be displaced from their jobs and have always had this dream of running a restaurant and have some involvement or have an operating partner who has some experience actually will come seek out brands like us. We have over 150 people in our pipeline uh, who are interested in opening blazes. We have Territory is available in some really hot markets because we need to build some density. There's still an awareness proposition for fast, casual pizza across the country where a lot of people need to figure out what that is. And to your point a moment ago, figure out what better pizza tastes like. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so our, we have a, a rough pencil to 800 by 2025, and that's based mm. on sustainable growth. I think there's a lot of concern with franchisees occasionally about, oh, they're just opening restaurants to open them. Uh, I'm, I am more about franchisee profitability, right? The more I can get you to open a restaurant that has a great return, you will open more restaurants and then my P&L takes care of itself. So, yeah, we have a, we have a, a, a great track record ahead of us of um, getting to that 800 number, mm-hmm. but in a really sustainable way. Yeah, really interesting. Um, is it all going to stay U.S., Canada, or their thoughts overseas, expand the overseas network, or how do you see it? Oh, definitely. Yeah, oh, okay. definitely. We're actually already in uh, Dubai, Bahrain, oh, Kuwait. Forgive me. Um, yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, and I think this brand has legs almost universally. I mean, pizza is just mm. one of those ubiquitous uh, food groups, right? Right. But certainly India, uh, South Korea is a tremendous market, China. Um, 
yeah, sky's the limit. We have a little bit of work we're doing this year on some of the domestic footprint, really optimizing franchisee profitability, again, because it, the, the better you can get that machine to work, the faster the proposition sells itself. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot of investment that we're making this year from a corporate perspective to make sure that happens. But we absolutely have our eye on other international markets. So they're already in a few international markets, but definitely looking to do more. That was Blaze President and CEO Mandy Shaw. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenebeck. Much more ahead in our next hour, including an in-depth look at the future of work and the great disruption of hybrid work how it's all changed because of the pandemic. It's definitely being turned upside down. We'll do that with two senior execs, one at Microsoft 365, the other at Prudential Financial. Are we happy working at home? Do we want a hybrid world forever? They help answer some of those questions. Plus, the president and CEO of Siemens US on how we return to schools and our offices safely. It's all about that. And beating burnout at work with the CEO of the Stress Uh, and Resilience Institute, right? Yeah, this is an important one. All of that to come in the next hour of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including a deep, deep dive into how work is shifting. Working from home, Tim, hybrid, being connected all the time, and also all the elevated stress that comes as a result. Yeah, with that in mind, a series of interviews to maybe ease your mind, including one with a consultant to companies who has the secret of beating burnout at work. Carol, just because we're not, you know, at work right. doesn't mean we are not working. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? You and I are at work. We are. <laughs> and we are working. Also, Microsoft and Prudential senior execs weighing in on how work is changing. Hybrid, yes, yet workers also want more face-to-face time. And then the president and CEO of Siemens US, Barbara Humpton, on getting back to school, back to work, and of course, safely. Yeah, it's all about doing it safely. First up, Tim and I talk a lot about how work is shifting and the stresses on employees and leaders. We do that on our daily radio show and podcast. But it was also part of a conversation in a Bloomberg Live virtual event that was held this past week. With that in mind, one person on the subject who joined us this week is Paula Davis, founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, also author of the book Beating Burnout at Work. Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. We started the conversation, though. She talked about her own struggles during the pandemic. So I'm just, you know, just trying to pivot my business on a dime and write a book during a pandemic. And um, I have an almost five-year-old, and so I feel like I'm sort of in the thick of it with everybody. Yeah, so, so. easy, right? Everything's been easy. It, totally. Yeah. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us very briefly, um, talk a little bit about how you had a burnout earlier in your career and how it led you to think differently about what you wanted to be doing? hundred percent. So I, I practiced law for seven years and um, burned out during what became the last year of my law practice. And so I did not know what it was. I felt like it was something that sort of crept up on me. Once I was really in it, I, I knew something was wrong or off and I, I didn't really know how to address it or get myself out of it. And there were some warning signs that I missed kind of going through that process that I didn't realize were warning signs until after the fact. So um, you know, it was a, a year-long um, process that that ended in, in a not-so-great way. I was having panic attacks, and I was in the mm. emergency room a couple of times wow. from the stress that I was experiencing. Um, and that really caused me to take a step back and rethink what I wanted to be doing with my career. And so that um, I said, why not make my mess my message and, and 
sort of turned and uh, found the Applied Positive Psychology program at University of Pennsylvania. So I thought, why not, why not study all the factors that lead up to this so that I can steer organizations and leaders and people away from this? Hey, Paula, give us some of the warning signs that, that you know now but didn't know at the time. So there were three big ones. And as I, as I realized, these, these are actually the three big dimensions of burnout. So this is also how you know if, if what you're experiencing is starting to move away from stress and into something like burnout. So the first one was chronic physical and emotional exhaustion. So um, we all have tired days and weeks and things like that, but this was over a period of time, nothing that I did felt like I could, you know, kind of refuel my tank. Um, So there was that one. And the second big warning sign is chronic um, cynicism. So everyone Mm. just started to bug me and annoy me and (laughs) especially my, especially my clients, which is a bad thing to to have happen. Um, Outwardly, I was always very professional, but inwardly, there was a lot of eye rolling going on. Is that stress um, or just being a New Yorker? I'm just going to say from my own perspective. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting about, you know, and and our producer, Paul Brennan, said to me, all right, Carol, you're not going to like this, but she said one of the things is you can't yoga retreat your way out of stress. I'm a big yoga person and I've gone on retreats. I mean, the whole kind of message is Try not to get to the point where you're stressed and burnt out, right? That It's not about treating that. It's trying to get to prevent getting there. Yeah, it is also recognizing that we've been really kind of talking about burnout in the wrong way for a long period of time. We've been focused on talking about it as solely kind of an individual problem that requires individual strategies to fix it, when in reality... There's certainly things about our personalities and our resilience levels and things that influence whether we'll burn out. But the bigger picture is is looking at the rest of the organizational system, right? It's also the teams that we're part of and the leaders that we have and the um, the organizational culture and environment. And that's really the bigger piece of the puzzle. So we have to start kind of adding to the conversation. So we're expanding from not just the individual approach, but really looking at the whole entire system and what we can do. But is this leaders? You know, I understand everybody has to look at it, but listen, I can certainly say (laughs) as a worker bee, you know, here's our problem or here's my problem, but you know, isn't it up to the folks at the top to kind of set the tone? Yeah, it's, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. And I talk about in the, in the book that, that organizations that have been successful at really kind of rolling out more of this systemic approach had leader buy-in, but it was huge, right? And so, so that's a lot of where I like to start my work is at the leader level. And it's not just leaders at the top, it's really leaders at all levels, um, you know, who have a responsibility to, to really understand the deeper causes of burnout and recognize um, what's at play within their own teams and spheres of influence. So what's the right way for us to be thinking about this while so many of us are working from home and don't necessarily have that separation between work and life, like rolling out of bed and then your desk is right there and you just get on that Zoom call and you're doing that until you realize that it's 6 p.m.? Yes, and then then we continue to work after we get dinner ready and things like that. So so that's been a really difficult challenge and the kind of the little formula that I've been giving people is that we know burnout is more likely to happen when our demands... Um, outpace our resources. So when there's an imbalance between our demands and resources. And the hard part, I think, about the environment we've been in is that we have, we've already had lots of demands with our work, and now we have more because of the pandemic and other things, right? So we, and we have fewer resources. Paula Davis, founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, also author of the book, Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. You, me, we hold the secret, Tim. We do. We have, we have the power. <laughs> You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. 
a hybrid work model, back at the office, or working from home, what do we all want? A Microsoft 365 Roundup on the great disruption of hybrid work. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We continue with looking at how work has been impacted by the pandemic. One company with a great window into all of that, Microsoft, which came out with another round of data points about how we have been working during the pandemic and where we are today. To get more on the recently released and updated Microsoft Work Trend Index, Jared Spataro, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft 365, joined us with an array of statistics and findings. When all this started to happen about a year ago, you know, one of the things I knew for certain, probably the only thing I knew for certain is that we just needed to get some data. Like we, we need to become students of the moment. So over the course of, of this last 12-month period, we have periodically been taking samples as we go out and find out across the world how people are doing. This last report that we published is a survey of over 30,000 people in 31 countries. It's all sorts of different mixes of roles and industries. So you see everyone from a typical knowledge worker that you might see in an office to people who are working on the front lines. We're getting a good sense of how people are feeling and what they're valuing and what their challenges are. Uh, how are we doing? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like, I got to tell you, uh, just talking to friends, reading about how uh, people are feeling, uh, I think a lot of people are at their wits end. You know, uh, that is essentially what the data says. But let me let me kind of pull out a couple of points that really caught my attention. If you ask leaders, they actually say they're doing pretty well. 61% of leaders say that they are thriving. But that's 23 percentage points higher than those without decision-making authority. When we get down to the average worker and, and ask them, how are we doing? Then those numbers, I think, you know, really hit that feeling that we all feel around us. Um, 54% of workers globally say that they feel overworked. 39% say that they feel exhausted. So there is a sense of exasperation that it's been a very long year and a very challenging year. Well, the thing that that says to me, Jared, is that we've got to make sure that leaders are in sync with workers, right? Because leaders ultimately set policy. That's right. I mean, the, the way I look at this, if we take a step back for a moment, you know, I think this is one of those once in a lifetime shocks that comes to to an economy that comes to a business that comes to organizations. And, and in fact, what the data seems to point out is that leaders are not in sync, that they need a little bit of a wake up call. I think so many leaders are, in, are just kind of thinking we're going to go back to the way it was in January 2020. And that's just not the case. And so this wake up call, I think, is a moment for all of us to look around and recognize things have changed. The labor market's changed, employee sentiment has changed, how we do things has changed. It really is a moment that demands vision and leadership. And that's what we're trying to point out in the data is that there's there's an opportunity for so much good there, but at the same time, if we just let it unfold on its own, under its own weight, there's an opportunity for some downside too. Look, such a disconnect between the way that workers feel and the way that managers feel. How do the two meet? How do workers, how do, you know, how do managers rise to the occasion here? Well, let's first talk a little bit about what we're hearing from both sides. So when we talk to workers, um, we hear that over 70% of them want flexible remote work to stay in some form. So in other words, they're saying, I like the flexibility. Just anecdotally, when I talk to people on my team out here on the West Coast, they say things like, you know what, I'm eating breakfast with my kids for the very first mm -hmm. time. I've never done that before. I'd like that to stick around. So they like that. At the same time, those same people 
66% of them say that they want more in-person time with their team. So they're saying, please give me flexibility, but at the same time, give me the opportunity to get back in person. Now, when we look at, at managers or leaders, on the other hand, they are recognizing that that flexibility is valuable. Over 80% of them plan to keep more flexible remote from work from home policies post-pandemic. So I think the meeting, the way I would term it is, we want the best of all worlds. We want people to be able to work together, workers and managers, to find kind of that best of all worlds uh, setup so that everybody is getting things that, that benefit them. And I believe that, you know, there's a bright future ahead if we'll grab onto that and work together. Hey, Jared, what about demographic differences, age differences when it comes to all of this? You know, we definitely saw that. If we go back to that idea that um, we're trying to understand who's thriving and who's not doing so well, if I just point to Gen Z, that's a very interesting data point for us. 60% of Gen Z say that they're just surviving or even struggling right now during the current setup. And so essentially what we're seeing is that this generation is more likely to be single early in career. They are definitely feeling the effects of kind of the impact of isolation a struggle with motivation at work. They don't have the same financial means as those that are more established. And so Gen Z in particular reads, needs, I think, you know, some energy and some attention because after all, you know, from our perspective, they are the future of work. When we talk about it, it has to do with people and that's the generation that's going to help us. What is the right way for us to approach this when it comes to balancing our, our work and lives? You did mention that for the first time, parents are able to eat breakfast with their kids, but at the same time, it also means that there isn't that separation between work and home life. Yes, definitely that's something that people are struggling with is this idea of how do I put boundaries on what I'm doing? So we, you know, in many ways, I think that you should kind of internalize that we have become the first truly always on digital workforce, you know, and that was forced upon us starting last year. And we just didn't have the norms or the boundaries or the kind of cultural things that we needed to deal with it. So our recommendation from the data is that companies take a step back and they think about a couple of key things. They think about new norms that they want to establish, kind of new approaches that they think will be important, and even new policies that will help them out. So at Microsoft, as an example, we've, we've already made the announcement that, that uh, our workers can work from home 50% of the time. And what we're trying to do there is signal, we think in-person time is important, that FaceTime will be important. At the same time, we want to give employees more flexibility than they had before the pandemic to do some of those things that really matter to them. Well, that's interesting. So where do you think, you know, companies need to invest? Because it also sounds like on the other side, and I know you guys did some work with LinkedIn, you know, specifically, employees are looking for that flexibility when they go searching for a job. Absolutely. I mean, one of the data points that definitely caught my attention was that remote job postings on LinkedIn increased more than five times during the pandemic. And we saw that it was women, Gen Z, and those without graduate degrees who are more likely to apply for those jobs. So we, we see a really interesting thing happening here with the labor market, where again, this could be a real upside coming out of this new world of work. Now, in terms of investments and, and things that we think that people need to do, we think that there needs to be more investment in kind of first, just the people, the soft side of how work gets done. We think that companies, as an example, really need to lean into well-being and helping their employees understand you just aren't going to perform well if you're trying to work 24-7. But how do you make that argument to, to a company that's just focused on the bottom line? Like, how do you convince them that this is an investment that they need to make? Like, what are the numbers that you can show them that say, hey, this is something that is vital to the success of your company? You bet. I think what you do is you appeal to the bottom, bottom line. Our perspective has been what the numbers are starting to show us is that um, you can't treat people like machines and try and increase their productivity by just simply increasing their uptime. 
you really can't. You, you cannot treat people like machines. And I think with people outside of the office and all of us communicating mm-hmm. over email and, and in these messaging <sighs> systems, it probably is easier and easier to do that because we're not actually around one another. I am not a machine. Just <laughs> Very say. true. Jared Svitaro, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft 365. Carol, I, I can attest to it. You are a, a living, <laughs> breathing person. All right, everyone. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, our conversation on how work is shifting because of changes caused by the pandemic. It's a conversation you and I have personally, but we have it with all of our guests. And we're going to talk with the Vice Chair at Prudential Financial. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. All right, another chat for you this week on work shifting and what work looks like next, thanks to a Bloomberg Live virtual event on the subject you and I participated in. Right, at that event, and a go-to voice for us on this is Rob Thousand, Vice Chair at Prudential Financial and a member of Prudential's Board of Directors, who shared the company's latest survey on how the pandemic has changed the way that work gets done. We started off, though, talking about the release of the upcoming report. We've got another survey coming out, haven't released it yet, but it'll be out uh, next week. But a preview on that, I think two really interesting things that came out of it. The first is really clear that uh, hybrid is going to dominate the work environment in the future. Um, The numbers on this have been rising every survey that we've done. So 87% of the uh, respondents to our survey prefer a remote environment uh, at least one day a week, so a hybrid environment. Um, that's up from like 68% when we began doing these surveys some time ago. The, the second really interesting thing that came through this that maybe shouldn't have been a surprise based on some of the data we've seen earlier, but uh, one in four workers had indicated that they have very definite plans to change employers post the pandemic. Uh, and wow. the interesting thing is, yeah, it's your most skilled talent that's actually thinking about making those moves. So uh, some really interesting stuff coming out of this last survey. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, um, I think there's a, uh, a disassociation that's occurred with individuals over the course of the pandemic. You know, you, you speak with the colleagues that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, but not with the rest of the organization. And so there's been some disassociation with a broader colleague group and, and with the culture of the company. And I think as a result of that, people are feeling a little less attached to their platforms, their, their employer, than they used to. And I, the, the big driver then beyond that is, I think they're frustrated that uh, they don't see career opportunities in this environment, and they're out looking for that career opportunity because they're not finding it where they're sitting today. Rob, one thing I like talking to you about is how employees are thinking about their own futures when it comes to switching jobs, and also how employers are dealing with that. Do they have the talent pool right now to choose from for the jobs that are going to be required five, ten years from now? Yeah, this is a really interesting topic, and the answer is yes and no. And the, the, uh, the reality is we're going to hit a skills gap, uh, and we're already seeing it. Uh, that you know, What's happened during the pandemic is there's been an enormous sort of roll forward of uh, adoption of digital and technology. And uh, that's left individuals feeling as if they're not sure they're quite prepared for dealing with the workforce. So our numbers show that you know, before the pandemic, about a third of the people we surveyed said that weren't sure they had the skills for the jobs they had today, and that number went up to 50% when they rolled forward five to 10 years. Well, our recent surveys have indicated that that number's already up to 45%. People worried that they don't have the skills to compete 
in today's workforce. And employers are looking at that. Our needs have changed pretty dramatically post the pandemic for the types of skills that we need. The challenge we're going to face is there aren't a lot of people out there that are going to be able to fill these jobs. And I think, you know, so the responsible, both from a leadership standpoint and probably from a societal standpoint, is we're all going to have to invest in skilling, reskilling, and upskilling individuals in order to give them what they need to do the jobs of the future that are going to be required. What are these skills that are required for the jobs of the future? I think so often we hear about the idea of, of people needing to learn, especially at a young age, right? Coding and computer science skills and, and STEM. But what are you seeing in, in the results of your surveys? Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a broad base. Um, I would not underestimate the soft skills and the need to deal with customers. I mean, As a history is, major, that's what I like to hear. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've got a son who's a history major. I'm sure he likes to hear that as well. Uh, it, is, uh, it is absolutely critical. You know, everyone's talking about digital, but, you know, they're talking about digital as enabling a better customer experience. And so there's a lot of investment being made at the interface with the customer and making that, you know, enabled through digital, but also then having a higher quality experience, which means that you want people to put that higher touch on that and to be there for the needs that can't be answered sort of through the automated systems that we're setting up. Um, there is a need for analytics. I mean, the biggest area of hiring that we'll probably be doing in the upcoming year is going to be around data science and data analytics. And that's sort of the higher, uh, the, the, you know, the higher level of analytics that, that the computers can't do. It's it's setting up the programming inter and interpreting the results coming out of that that gives us insights as to you know where 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 customers are going and what they need. So hybrid here to stay? Absolutely here to stay. Um, here's an interesting additional thing that came out of the survey, Carol. Yeah. Um, over four, just over forty percent of the people said they do not want to work for a company that is fully on premise. Wow. Another forty percent said they do not want to work for a company that is fully remote. So you have the bookends of that. No one wants to work in a place that's either fully remote or fully, fully at the office. Everyone yeah. wants a hybrid experience so you can have the best of both worlds. Rob Falzen, Vice Chair at Prudential Financial and a member of Prudential's Board of Directors. Still to come, getting us back to work means also getting our kids safely back to school. Our workplaces need to be secure, too. Thoughts on that with the President and CEO of Siemens U.S. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. That's next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. We've got one more segment from our virtual work shifting event this week. It's a conversation with the president and CEO of Siemens U.S., Barbara Humpton, who is working with companies and schools to get people and kids back to work, back to school safely. Before that, though, Carol, you began with Barbara's reaction to President Biden's infrastructure plan. To see the administration proposing such bold moves in things that really matter. You know, here we are thinking that we're at the end, or should I say the beginning of the end of a pandemic? And yet we're also at the beginning of something brand new. When we think about the power of infrastructure and particularly the power of infrastructure using today's connected technologies, we have the chance to drive a step change that's going to basically create the foundation for a strong economy for decades to come. So we, we at Siemens are bullish on the next steps in America's infrastructure. Is it safe to say that companies have already been calling you in anticipation of this spending or focus on infrastructure? 
Siemens has been focused on infrastructure for a long time. And I often get asked, you know, does a change of administration make a big difference? And, and this is truly a bipartisan topic. So I'm proud to say that Siemens for over 160 years has been building America's infrastructure here in the U.S., right? Everything from originally getting involved in power, in healthcare, in transportation. Now, the future of buildings, the future of manufacturing. These are things where we've got broad ecosystems, partners all across the country ready to perform. And I think this is a chance to up our game. You talk about the future, Barbara. So talk to us about visibility that you feel like you have, generally speaking. We're going to drill down into schools in particular. But when you look at the economy from your vantage point, you work with so many different industries, so many different companies, so many different suppliers. What's the economic and business environment? What does it look like? What visibility do you have right now? Yeah, we recognize that there's been such tremendous impact on the economy throughout the pandemic. This has been a really tough year. And yet, if you look across verticals within this market, you see some exciting signals. As I say, there are segments of the market that have been stepping up, responding to the call, actually transforming themselves. We knew before coronavirus hit that we were at the brink of a digital transformation. This internet of things that is going to be so much bigger than the last decade of the internet of people. So, so we recognize the opportunity ahead. There are strong verticals beginning to make a move. And where we focused most deeply during the days of the pandemic was first hospitals, making sure healthcare had access to the technologies they needed. Then schools, obviously working with our partners to make sure we were supporting the education of our children but also in industry, stepping up, helping pharmaceuticals, medical devices, uh, helping those who are producing PPE, the, the items we need every day that are going to be vital to us. All of these, we've been able to ramp up production, help people with the tools we can bring to the table. But far more important than the technology and the tools has been the people. It's been phenomenal to see relationships come to fruition and, and get creative. So in terms of the economic outlook, do you feel like you have a lot of visibility about the, the next six months or so? Like, can you, does the economy feel a lot better? Yeah, I actually, I'm bullish. We are all bullish on this. We know that um, there's pent up demand. We know that as things come back online, there's gonna be the, a surge to respond to immediate needs. And we see the power of the transformation ahead. All right, so let's talk about schools because the conversation I have had so many times, and I bet you have as well over the past year, is that it was hard for people to get back work. It is hard for parents to get back to work if they've got young children or and those kids aren't in school. What are you hearing? What are your expectations about uh, when it comes to school districts, what's being done and what needs to be done? Yeah, it, Carol, it's that, right? It's it's what, what impact has this had on working people? But it's also what impact has this had on the workforce of the future? You know, a, a year of lost learning opportunities is something we all need to be concerned about. So we've been working with school districts all across the country, uh, you know, with the American Rescue Plan, right? We, we have a an amazing amount of funding available to us now, some $280 billion for both K-12 and higher ed. 
said, to help schools adapt their uh, operations to what we're now dealing with as reality. Now, a lot of people are, can do a lot of things with those resources. We're really encouraging leaders to take a look at technologies that are available to us today to actually make those school buildings, those school facilities healthier. You know, it, years ago, we all, you know, put in place HVAC systems, et cetera. A lot of that infrastructure is over 50 years old now. We have technologies today, including things like safe ozone-free ionization, things like UV treatment, ways to actually adapt HVAC systems so that we can provide healthier indoor environments. I mean, let's face it, the air quality is five times more contaminated inside than outside, and yet we're spending over 90% of our time indoors. It's important that we get these indoor facilities to be as healthy as possible. I want to ask you, and I want to bring in a poll, because we talked to our audience here at this Bloomberg Live event, um, and we asked them specifically uh, about, do you trust your company operations to keep you safe if and when you return to your office? And fully half are saying they don't trust their companies to keep them safe. And when you talk about safety, you just touched upon it, Barbara. It's all kinds of things, but it's air quality. Um, when you see that, are you surprised by those numbers? Well, yes and no, right? We are still in the early days where folks need insight into information and data. I mean, what forms the basis for trust? It really comes from two factors. One is, do I believe that this organization is competent? Do they understand and have knowledge of what needs to be done here? And then what about integrity? Are these people who will be trustworthy with me? And so I think all of us, businesses, government, et cetera, have to earn that trust. We at Siemens are relying on the science and we're doing all we can to educate people on the tools that are available to us today. And knowledge is growing every day. You know, you took me to a place, and I want to get back to more of the tools and the technology because you guys are front and center with that. But is there now a new or should there be a new informal contract between leaders, heads of companies, and their employees when it comes to safety? It's not just about falling downstairs, but it's also about this pandemic has taught us so much more. It's, it's much more deeper. So should there kind of be an informal, formal contract when it comes to safety at, at work? Well, I, I hope other companies are like us. We've made the environmental health and safety aspect of our, of our business, the foundation of our business. And we have a motto. It's a simple one. We take care of each other. It's something that guides us each day. And throughout this past year, our EHS professionals have really been heroes, you know, being on the front line, providing our employees with more information, informing upper management about the things we need to understand about the environment. At Siemens, we do have the need to have people in work environments every single day. But for those who have the flexibility to work from everywhere, our, our new deal, our agreement is, hey, from here on out, two to three days, wherever you're most productive. So I, I do think, A, we have tools and techniques to make those fixed work environments like factories, like hospitals, like schools healthier. And we have the ability now to give people more flexibility to make their own choices through digital connections. You know, it's interesting, a question just coming in from our audience about this, Barbara. It says, uh, you know, it has to do with mental health, which is something I have had 
you know, go back a year, I don't think I would have expected to have these conversations with CEOs and leaders like yourself, but it has infiltrated every conversation and that has to do with the mental well-being as well as the physical well-being of their employees. This question coming in, what system do you have in place for people juggling so many chaotic situations in their lives which are causing unimaginable mental stress for them? Yeah, the, the first actually is making us all aware that it's a reality, right? Actually stepping up and saying, this is a fact of today's work life. And we used to talk about work-life balance. I've always been a proponent. Over this past year, we've all come to uh, the, the, the reality of working in an environment. So we have absolutely added mental wellness tools to our toolkit so that managers and employees can have open dialogue. Employees can have um, conversations with people outside of the company if they're not comfortable speaking up inside the company. All of those are, are there to assist us as we deal with this reality. That's president and CEO of Siemens US, Barbara Humpton. I've been thinking a lot about this because we mm -hmm. are a year into this pandemic yeah. and the gap that we see between the millions of people who are unemployed and the millions of people who have been working from home over the last year and how those experiences have differed so much. Yeah, and especially differences, I think, between how maybe leaders are seeing some yeah. of this, either wanting workers to come back or thinking hybrid worked really well and employees actually with a different perspective. And listen, Check out all of these conversations because it really gives you some great insight, especially if you're a leader, about maybe some of the policies you need to be setting. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Check out, two our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Watch Tim. <laughs> Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg.